0: back again to BadQuaker.com. Uh, this is the BadQuaker.com podcast. My name is Ben Stone, and we're here on the Liberty Radio Network. If you are unfamiliar with our podcast, be sure and get over to BadQuaker.com and check us out. We have a lot of uh, older files there, a lot of archives. Just go over to the right side of BadQuaker.com, scroll down, and you can hit the under the Categories uh, uh Category. <laughs> you can hit the All Podcasts button and it'll pull up a list of uh, all the old podcasts, or you can search by audio article. So, anyway, um, yesterday, for all of our regular listeners, we uh, oh it was just me uh, i ha- i say we because oftentimes i have a co-host uh, kai but she wasn't with me yesterday so it was just me and i uh, talked about and then did an interview with uh, brad jardis up in new hampshire and brad is planning today friday oh i'm sorry i didn't give the date today is friday december 8 december 9th 2011 and this is podcast number 60 sorry about that Uh, If there's anything that regular listeners of badquaker.com are accustomed to, it's the fact that uh, we don't really, we're not very organized around here. We just, uh, we have like cats walking through knocking over the mic and dogs barking halfway through the podcast and all kinds of crazy things like that. Um, Half the time I'm doing the podcast from the motorhome and there are trains and trucks and whatnot in the background. So uh, that's just kind of part of the badquaker.com ambiance. Okay, so anyway, uh, Brad Jardis up in New Hampshire is going to the uh, Plymouth State uh, University campus today, if all if all uh, continues as plans have been. And he's going to open carry his rifle along with, um, oh, what's the other guy's name? I don't have it in front of me. That's terrible. Let me pop over to the, uh, to the website. I know as soon as I read his name, it's going to pop right back in. I'm going to be embarrassed because it's... Uh, Oh, the internet's being slow, and here it is, Tommy Mazingo. Sorry, Tommy, I I forget my own children's names half the time, so you know. Um, anyway, uh, Brad and Tommy are going to be, uh, if all goes as planned, they will be uh, going to the Plymouth State University in New Hampshire, which is state property, and they will be um, expressing their rights according to the New Hampshire law. By open carrying on the campus, they will be carrying their rifles uh, uh, on slings, and they will not be brandishing them. There's a difference between brandishing a weapon and carrying a weapon in its proper sling or in its uh, 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 holster or whatever. Anyway, uh, they will not be brandishing weapons. They will be carrying weapons. They will be open carrying as per the law. And they will be doing this in open defiance of the rules of Plymouth State University, which are in violation of the law. And uh, uh, Brad makes his argument over at uh, at his uh, the press release that he put over on. Uh, Uh, free keens website and i'll link to that again today as i did yesterday Uh, the interview with brad that i did is available at badquaker.com just when you get there just scroll down and you'll see the uh, the bradley jardis new hampshire uh, self-defense headline there and you can just click on that and go to the the page that relates to that and the and the uh, links are right there on it and you can if you haven't heard it you can listen to the interview that i did with him So, there is one modification, and this is the reason I brought it up today. Uh, They have decided that the rifles will be unloaded. Uh, I'm not sure I agree with that. I think an unloaded rifle sort of defeats the purpose of having a rifle. Um, Brad is not in any way unsafe if he has or or doesn't have a rifle. He's not in any way unsafe if that rifle is loaded or not loaded. Or, uh, I mean, you know... Uh, what is unsafe is a law that disarms people and guarantees that the, uh, that good people have no way of defending themselves and considering that criminals, you know, I know this is a shock to people on the left, but criminals don't pay attention to the law. They break the law. So when you write a law that says, oh, you're not allowed to have a gun here, a criminal doesn't care. You see, there are already laws against, like, you know, not harming people and not robbing people and not killing people, not shooting people. There are already laws against all that. And oddly enough, criminals do it anyway. Amazing. I know that's a shock to people on the left and people on the right, because this same mentality affects people on the right. It's just uh, in a different way. And anyone, on, uh, any right wing leaning people right now are saying, I understand gun rights. No, no, no. Listen, 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 listen carefully. When you, when you support the war on drugs, you're just as silly as those people on the left. When you, when you think you can stop drug use and the drug trade by just outlawing it or cracking down, you're just as silly as those people on the left that think they can stop gun crimes by outlawing guns. It's the same level of stupidity. And, and, and I'm sorry if you're offended by my words, but that's what it is. It's just stupidity. If you think outlawing drugs, if you think outlawing any particular behavior, oh, well, let's go off on a different one. People on the right are there uh, saying, what we need to do is have a uh, the government step in and define marriage. Oh, you idiot. I mean, really, come on. You need the government to tell you what marriage is? You really want the government to have the authority to tell you who you can and can't marry? Well, but... I realize your argument. I realize very religious people have their reasons for wanting to do this. But think about it just a little bit. Just think about it. Do you honestly want somebody in government dictating what is and what isn't marriage? Why would you give your rights over to government like that? You you conservatives, ask yourself this question. Because when you come to these conclusions in your mind, you look just as silly as those people on the left who argue that that, uh, that we can somehow become safer by outlawing guns. It's the same level of stupidity. All right, so let me get off of that a little bit. I didn't mean to go in that direction. That's just uh, I wanted to update that Brad and Tommy will not be carrying loaded rifles. They will be carrying unloaded rifles. And I guess some of the people, uh, some of the whiners at uh, the Plymouth State University are the cause of that. They were so afraid and I and I use the word afraid because it's cowardice. That's what it is. It's it's ignorance and it's cowardice. And there's no there's really no way to whitewash it and make it sound any better. That's what it is. Uh, if you're afraid of an of a an ex cop and a and a uh, former uh, U.S. Army uh, a, a U.S. Army vet, if you're afraid of them being armed, well, there's no logic to that. Most fear is based on ignorance, and that's exactly what that is. Yeah, I. My discussion with Brad, uh, in every way, he appeared to me to be an intelligent, peaceful person. I have no reason to suspect him of being any kind of violent person in any way. He has a long record of being a stable uh, uh, individual who is committed to peacefulness and committed to the law. And he spent his life essentially uh behaving that way and so why would we now think that he's somehow not safe to carry a loaded weapon all the years the 11 years that he was a police officer and he carried a loaded weapon would we have been concerned then is the costume different is that what is that what makes it if he dressed up like a cop do you do you this same level of logic so then if um, if the village people were to show up, at your Plymouth State University, in costume, singing their little songs. Uh, you, can hear, uh, you can hear the dogs barking and the other dogs shaking their head in the background there, but back to the topic. If the village people show up at Plymouth State University and they're singing their little songs, YMCA, and the one that's dressed like a cop has a fully loaded Glock hanging on his hip, are you comfortable with that? Actually, you should be unless that guy has some kind of unless you have some kind of reason to believe that he's a criminal or he has bad intent uh, in which case I would want Tommy and Brad they are armed as a countermeasure to that. Okay so that's not really the point of today's uh, podcast it's just I have a tendency to go off on tangents on things like that whenever whenever given the opportunity. I did want to fall back. Uh, I did a podcast the other day where I mentioned uh, a link that I came to... I I found this link over at uh, Lou Rockwell's uh, blog. Uh, I found a link to uh, a particular group of people that... um, uh, I, I still need to check them out more. My, I just gave my initial impression of them, and I found out that uh, the 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 people that produ- produced or uh, this movie uh, Thrive, I believe it's called, and I found that one of the people from that project was also one of the people from the uh, the project, uh, the movie, S- The Secret of Oz. And so I made some, uh, possibly some negative comments about, uh, uh, about all that. And so I did get some feedback on it. So I want to clarify some things. First off, the feedback that I got, clearly you haven't listened to my other podcasts on Greenbackers. Uh, Or you weren't paying attention. Or clearly you haven't actually gone and followed my link over to Gary North and listened to or watched or read or whatever what he has to say about greenbackers. Um, Greenbackers, uh, let let me explain what the greenbackers are yet again, because evidently clicking the links is too much effort. A greenbacker is a person who wants all money, all the money supply to be in the control of uh, specifically Congress rather than somebody like a central bank. Now, that's what a greenbacker is, essentially. Now, uh, since a greenbacker can also exist in countries other than the U.S., they don't necessarily want the Congress in Washington, D.C. to control their monetary supply. But the idea is they want the government in control of the monetary supply. That's what a greenbacker is. They want fiat money not backed by anything, and they want that money issued by the government. And that's what a greenbacker is. Now, the confusing part about this Thrive uh, video and website, I paused there because I had to double-check to make sure I had the name correct because I wasn't sure if it was Thrive or something else. But yes, it is Thrive. The name of this movie is Thrive, and it's called Thrive Movement. Uh, I'm not going to put a link to them because I I just don't want to pollute badquaker.com with a link to these people, Uh, but um, they appear in every way to be uh, anarchist or anarcho-capitalist, and I hope they are. I hope they're just slightly confused about money. The the uh, What I referred to in the podcast the other day was that on the Lou Rockwell site, what they do is they drop the names of a bunch of Austrian, uh, well-known Austrian uh, economists and notable people in the Austrian e- economics movement, and then they refer back to their movie and their website, and I look all over their website. I find no reference to anything Austrian economics or any reference at all to any Austrian uh, on their website, I only find the same greenbacker. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to call them economists because I- I'm not sure any legitimate economist holds the greenbacker position. I, there may be some out there, but, but um, and I don't know how you would define legitimate economist if you're not talking about an Austrian anyway. So, uh, but anyway, um, so the Thrive website, quotes the same people and is associated with the same people that made the other movie The um, the Secret of Oz. And so I got some criticism, not against what I said about Thrive. And again, I have to check them out further because their site's very confusing. I don't know how you can be an anarchist or an anarcho-capitalist and still be a greenbacker. But that's what it appears that they're blending here, along with some kind of mysticism and aliens. But uh, but let's leave Thrive off of it for the moment until I can investigate them further. Uh, let's go back to my comments about uh, the movie The Secret of Oz. And here's basically what I say about the The Secret of Oz. And I've said this over and over. It's in my other uh, it's in my other podcasts about Greenbackers. And and before before I do that, let me just say this. I don't want my podcast to be the anti-greenback podcast. You know, several times I've I've made my statement as to what I feel about the greenbackers, and I've said, okay, now I'm done with them. And then a few weeks go by, and I've got to deal with it again. And then a few weeks go by, and I've got to deal with it again. I'm really not going to just keep saying the same things over and over and over about greenbackers. Uh, but I, I will touch it this time because of the feedback that I got. Okay. Okay. So we begin the movie, The Secret of Oz. And as you start to watch this, and folks, it's almost a two-hour movie. I mean, come on, two hours. So you start to watch this thing. And uh, once you get past the intro music and the production credits and the movie itself, itself starts to play, the the first thing that they do is they begin laying out the basic argument that there are problems with the economy, and they quote several people, and Peter Schiff and somebody else. I don't. I hope Peter Schiff realized the mistake of showing up with these people because I know he is not a Greenbacker. But anyway. Uh, They quote these several people and and several people appear in the movie complaining about the current state of the economy and the current way of the fractional reserve and and central banking that has destroyed the economy and how it's going to get worse and how those processes are, are guaranteed to make the economy worse and worse and worse. And then they make this leap. Uh, and they begin to bring the greenbacker uh, position into play. Now, one of the criticisms that I received was that the secret of Oz is not greenbackers. Well, yes, they are. Uh, you probably don't know what greenbackers are, or otherwise you wouldn't say that. Greenbackers um, are exactly what I said a minute ago. Uh, they they want the government to control the issuing of fiat currency. That's what they want. They want to get rid of the power of the central banks, which I'm against central banks, Get rid of the power of the central banks to make their own money, that's a good idea. Get rid of credit expansion, that's a good idea. I just like Rothbard, I am for honest banking, I'm not for fractional reserve banking, and I'm certainly not for a central banking. Okay? But and that's where I am in the same boat with greenbackers, where I diverge from greenbackers as Rothbard and all other Austrian economists. The greenbackers want the government to control a monopoly on money. That's not a free market. That's socialism. As a matter of fact, that the kind of socialism that that is is called fascism. And I've said that before. Greenbackers are fascists. They are socialists, and they are fascists. When you want the government to control the money supply. Now, right now, the system we have... Uh, is a fascist system where corporations control, uh, the, the corporations being the central banks, control the money supply. But the way our Congress is set up in the U.S., if the Congress was in control of the money supply, because all the congressmen are essentially owned by corporations, you still have fascism. It's no different you know it might be different if you could have a perfect world where congress is entirely separated and there's uh, there's no donations of what of any kind to congress from any corporations and they have no lobbyists and and if you had some kind of perfect world like this then maybe it wouldn't be socialism maybe it wouldn't be fascism then it would only be socialism but it would still be socialism if the if the government is in control of a monopoly of the of the of the supply of money that's socialism. You see, socialism is when the means of production are controlled communally by the government or by, a, by a, 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 a commune of some kind or whatever. But when the means of production are not in control of the market, they are, in, they are centrally controlled, centrally planned, you have socialism. And money is the main means of production. So if the government is in control of the money supply, that is socialism. So, okay, so the secret of Oz starts off. And as I said, they go through their credits, and then they have some people talk about the the economy, and they talk a little bit about credit expansion and how uh, a debt-based money is bad, and I agree with all that stuff. And then, at the 4 minute, 34 second mark, they offer their solution, and their solution is the pure greenbacker proposition that all money be fiat and issued by the government. Okay, Four minutes, 34 seconds in, the greenback argument is proposed as the solution to our economy. Then that same thing is repeated at the 5 minute 35 mark, the 5 minute 43 mark, the 9 minute 25 mark, the 12 minute 40 second mark, the 12 minute 58 second mark, the 13 minute 25 second mark, and the 15 minute 38 second mark. And this time when I went through and listened to the movie, by the time I got to fifteen thirty eight, I said, that's enough. I'm not sitting through this stinker again. So I shut it off. But in the first 15 minutes and 38 seconds of the movie The Secret of Oz, the Greenbacker argument is proposed one, two, three, four, five, six, seven times, seven times in 15 minutes, 38 seconds. Now, to tell me that The Secret of Oz is not a, a film supporting the Greenbacker, uh, is not a Greenbacker movie, is either a, a, a intentional lie an intentional distortion, or sheer ignorance. Now, I don't know how you can call it anything else. All right, so now, here's another problem with the, with the movie The Secret of Oz. As I listened, and I got all the way to the 15 minute 38 second note, I had counted in that 15 minutes 38 seconds, I counted 23 outright lies. 23 lies in 15 minutes 38 seconds. Let me give you an example of one of the lies. They say that um, the Roman copper, Rome prospered supposedly under fiat currency. That's what they say. And they say that when Rome issued copper and bronze coins, that it was a fiat currency. Folks, copper and bronze are commodities, just like gold, just like cotton, just like tobacco, just like silver, just like butter. Bronze and copper are commodities. When Rome issued bronze and copper coins, they were issuing a commodity money, not a fiat money. Now, come on. I mean, that's blatantly lying. Um, They also say that uh, the copper and brass were a, quote, cheap material. Really? Really? Copper and brass are cheap. Funny because copper and brass really have the same value pretty much throughout the ages, just like gold has maintained its value throughout the ages. And uh, if you don't if you don't think that copper is a commodity, what do you think it is that's all over the news where people are you know like breaking into houses and stealing the pipes and stealing the wires out of uh, uh, you know substations and things like this? This is all over the news. What are they stealing? Are they stealing a non commodity? No. They're stealing copper, which is a valuable commodity. It's not as valuable as gold. It's not as valuable as, say, uh, you know, some other commodities. But all commodities have value. Otherwise, it wouldn't be considered a commodity. You see? It's that simple. So they lie. The secret of Oz. Lies in the first 15 minutes 38 seconds 23 lies in the first 15 minutes 38 seconds. How many did I say? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Seven times they reiterate the greenbacker argument, the same greenbacker argument that's existed since the days of Abraham Lincoln. A greenbacker, a greenbacker, Abraham Lincoln, remember him the guy that is personally responsible for the death of more Americans than any other human in history, that guy, Abraham Lincoln. (sighs) Okay. So hopefully at this point, well, let me say one last thing in reference to the secret of Oz. And this is necessary because of the vast amount of confusion that the greenbackers throw at the argument. What I'm asking for, what people like me support is not fiat money issued from a central bank or actually uh, credit-based money which is what we have now a credit-based fiat money issued from a central bank I'm not for that I don't support that I also don't support the government controlling the money supply that's socialism and I'm opposed to socialism what I support and other people like me what they support but I can only speak for myself What I support is free market money and open competition in money. So that if the federal government decides they want to issue federal dollars, let them do it. And if uh, the central banks want to issue central bank credit-based dollars, let them do it. And if Bill in New Hampshire or George in South Carolina or Ben in Ohio decides that we want to issue our own if i want to issue my own ben dollars that are made out of pumpkin seeds if people will take them then let it happen and if some company wants to put ron paul's face on a coin and issue it it's their business and if someone else wants to take that as payment for goods or services that should be their business you see that's the free market the free market is not in controlled is is not controlled by the government and free market in money is not money that's controlled by the government or issued by the government. It's a free market. Now, in a free market, all these players could take place. All these players could interact in such a market but because, because there's no force to stop anyone. But the market itself, people interacting in the market, decide which type of money works best for them, and that's what they choose, and that's what I support. And that's the type of money that has existed throughout the world through most of human history. The tiny wedges of time when some state muscled its way in and took control of the money supply, those are, those are little dots on the history timeline. Whether we're talking about uh, the United States or whether we're talking about the European Union or whether we're talking about any specific time that a, that, that a government used the force of state to, to bring in a, a monopoly into the, into the money market and control money through, through means of violence and a monopoly. Anytime that takes place, the, all those incidences are tiny little drops in the bucket throughout history. The vast majority of human history has used one form or another of money without government influence. All right, so... I think I'm done with that topic. I would really like to never think about greenbackers again. Uh, I will go ahead and look into the Thrive a little bit further, and unfortunately, I I may have to uh, refer again to what greenbackers are and what they are not, and um, I'd really prefer not to, but if I have to, I'll do that uh, again in uh, in order to investigate Thrive further. Okay, so let's get off that topic now and go to something a little bit more pleasant, a little bit more fun, and that is uh, the loonies over at the GOP. Uh, they're always a fun bunch, a, a fun bunch to watch. Um, they're the the GOP is always entertaining. You know, the way I'm thinking of uh, what was that Mel Brooks movie, uh, The Producers. Not I, I. didn't see the current uh, productions of that. I'm I'm old, you know. So my version of uh, Mel Brooks's The Producers is the old movie with Gene Wilder and and the other guy. I can't remember his name. Anyway, um, so in that version of the producers, just like it was fun to watch uh, the their depletion of the Nazis and you know them singing about. Uh, uh, the singing about uh, springtime for Hitler and all the fun things. It was fun to watch the Nazis in the producers. Well, in a similar way, it's fun to watch the GOP. Uh, after all, you know, w- watching one fascist and watching another fascist. Well, anyway. So, uh, in watching the GOP in the last year or so, and watching the uh, them all chasing the the nomination for president... Um, It's quite entertaining. It reminds me a lot of the 1996 presidential race, and it dawned on me about, oh, I think it was about halfway through the 1996 presidential race, that the GOP had no intention whatsoever of winning the 1996 presidential uh, race. They, they, You could tell by the way they were acting, by the people they were putting up, by everything that was, the, by the, the general tempo of the discussion of the day among the GOP, they had no intention of winning the 1996 presidential uh, position. They were, they were just going to let Clinton win that again. Their whole idea was to blame everything on Clinton and get more seats in the Senate and in the House. That's what they really wanted to do. And they were willing to give up the presidency in order to do that. And so they they put up this Bob Dole in 1996. And honestly, you know, you look at that guy at the time, back at the time, and there was just no way you could, if you've got Bill Clinton on one side and Bob Dole on the other, there's no way Bob Dole can win. Who would think he could and that's the point. The GOP knew he couldn't win. That's why they ran him, because they wanted more of control of the House and the Senate. They could, they could. Every four years, they can throw in another president. That's not a big deal. But you control the House and Senate for long periods of time, you control the government. You see, and that was their goal in 1996, and that's their goal today. They're not. The GOP has no intention to win the presidency in 2012. I made this. Uh, I. I put a, uh, a link to a picture in face on my Facebook account, on Bad Quaker's face, Facebook account, and I, and I put this statement in there, and so now I'm elaborating on it. The GOP, in November of 2012, you remember these words. When all the hype of the election is over and Obama has won, you remember these words. The GOP has no intention of winning in 2012. And remember I told you this. The GOP has no intention of winning in 2012. Otherwise, people like Mitt Romney and um, uh, Newt Gingrich wouldn't be the ones they're offering. And why do I say that this is their plan? Because neither of those guys can win the presidency. Neither of those two can win against Barack Obama. And in addition to that, by losing the presidency in 2012... The GOP can continue to beat up Barack Obama and win Senate and House seats. And all those Tea Party people are going to be all upset because they lose the presidency, and they're going to work that much harder to put Republicans into the seats in the Senate and in the House. And that's the GOP's plan. It's worked for them before. It will work for them again. And they know that, and that's what they're doing. So don't expect anybody to be president in 2012 except barack obama and then and now we have to deal with with the libertarian elephant in the room ron paul so i have to give my disclaimer first about ron paul otherwise you know the ron paul people go nuts on me so so let me first say this before many of you ron paul people were even born i was voting for ron paul in 1988 all right so sit down breathe slow, and listen to what I have to say before you freak out on me. I was a Ron Paul supporter before many of the Ron Paul supporters were even alive. So, uh, my opinion on Ron Paul. If you don't already know it, the regular listeners here know my opinion on Ron Paul, but I have to give the disclaimer each time anyway. I like Ron Paul. I've read Ron Paul's books. I like Ron Paul's books. I listen to his speeches. I like Ron Paul's speeches. I listen to him every time he goes to the Mises Institute. I appreciate all the great work he has done for our movement. And I acknowledge that without Ron Paul, many of the people who have been brought to the light would not have seen that light if it weren't for Ron Paul. And I will go on to say that probably more than any other single person, Ron Paul has brought attention to the cause of liberty. I acknowledge all that stuff is true. But then I go on to put this little caveat on top of what I just said. The last thing I want to see is Ron Paul get the Republican nomination for the presidency of the United States. And here's why. I have two reasons. Two reasons. First off, let's assume Ron Paul can get the nomination, and then let's assume Ron Paul can get elected as president and beat Barack Obama. What you are essentially doing is assuming that Ron Paul can fix what's wrong with the government. That's actually trusting the government to fix the government. Do you see the illogical loop that you've put yourself into? I realize everything, keep in mind, everything I just said about Ron Paul, Everything I just said about how much I appreciate him and how much I agree with him, and going back to the Greenbacker thing, Ron Paul and I believe in the same type of a financial system, the same free market money, okay? We're on the same side of this uh, battle. The difference is I see that if Ron Paul were put in charge, if Ron Paul were to become president, Trusting the President of the United States to fix the problems in government is trusting the government to fix the government. Now, that pattern of logic has been so thoroughly torn apart so often that I don't think I really need to go into it any further than to say that... You know, okay, no, so I'm not going to. I'm not going to go further than to say that trusting the government to fix the government is not wise. Now that's that's the one. Remember I said there were two things. The other aspect of this is that I'm old. I am old. And I remember the 1960s. I remember when political leaders in America who didn't fall in line fell in the pool of their own blood. I remember the 60s. I remember that. And I don't want that fate for Ron Paul. Now, one last thing. I said there were two things, but that's because I saved this one. There were actually three things. I didn't mean to lie there. It's just I was going to confuse one, number one with number three. And Anyway, it's all math. <laughs> um, the other thing is that if you could fix the government, if Ron Paul could fix the government, I don't think anybody can fix the government, alright, let me just, that's why I was going to put this as a part of number one. I don't, government, I don't think the government can fix the government, and I don't think anyone working inside the government can fix the government, including the president. I don't think that's even logical. But if we accept that illogical argument as being logical and we assume that Ron Paul could get in there and we could assume he could do all these wonderful things that we want him to do and we expect him to do and he did all those things and he got away with it and he didn't get assassinated by some lone nut that you know, has a copy of Catcher in the Rye in his back pocket at the time, assuming all that, okay, What would happen if Ron Paul could fix government? Well, then the evils of the state would be strengthened and would continue. And the state is the enemy of liberty. So to fix the government and perpetuate the state would be the opposite of liberty. That would not be good. That's like, put it it this way. You've got this guy in front of you, and he's getting ready to rob you. He's pulled a gun on you. You're in a dark alley. You're standing there helpless. You're not armed. He's pulled a gun on you. He's holding the gun on you. He's telling you he's going to rob you, and if you resist, he's going to shoot you. And then all of a sudden, you realize his gun is jammed. And knowing that, hey, he happens to be carrying... Uh, 1911 Colt 45 and you know that gun inside out and you're like I know exactly what's wrong with your pistol sir let me fix your pistol for you and you take his pistol and you do a real quick strip and you take it apart and you repair it and you take the you fix the jam and you hand it back to him would that make sense of course not so fixing the government so that it can oppress us more Would that make sense? Because you know what? I realize this is a shock to some people, but Ron Paul is a human, and he only is given so many years on this earth, and even if the powers that be do not do anything 1960s-like, and even if no lone gunman shows up with a copy of Catcher in the Rye in his back pocket and some mad scribblings in his diary and does something crazy, Even if none of that takes place and Ron Paul is elected and Ron Paul becomes president and Ron Paul does everything he's going to do, he is still a human who's going to live a natural quantity of time and then he's going to go on as all have. And when that takes place, you're going to have a more efficient government to bring upon you a more powerful state than can currently be imagined. Because Ron Paul could actually go in and cause government to be more efficient. He could do that. But that's not good, folks. That's not good. One of the redeeming qualities of government is that they're so horribly inefficient. To, to help them and make them more efficient so that they can beat us up and steal from us more. That's not good. I don't like that idea. I don't want to vote for that. Ron Paul's a great man. Ron Paul's done great things for liberty. Expecting the government to fix the government is the opposite of logic. Let me look at it a different way. Oftentimes, I've seen this when I was back in the days when I was posting under a variety of different names in a variety of different forms and there would be a logical discussion, a calm, a calm, logical discussion among libertarians and anarchists and minarchists and, and we're moving towards a logical conclusion of the, of the conversation. And, and this question would always come up when when someone saw the folly of what the government is going to produce for us by the use of the violence of the state and, and when, it, when it came to the point of where everybody in the conversation understood that the state is doomed to fall and that the state is, in, is unstable and cannot support itself and will eventually tumble, when this point came in the conversation, a, a question would always come up, and that question is, how do we get where we're going? How do we get to point B from where we are here at point A? And, and this is the maddening question that libertarians spend hours fighting with each other over. How do we get there? Do we do it this way? Do we do it that way? What do we do to, to get to where we're going? Do we get involved in government and change government? Do we attack the powers that be? Do we get out there and march? Do we wave signs? Do we take our tent down to Wall Street? And do we camp out there until they listen to us? Do we, do, uh, what is it that we do to get from where we are to where we need to be. How do we do that? Well let me throw up two more things for you. If we're talking about, okay, well we're looking at two things. We're looking at to change the system from within the system or we have to fight the system from outside the system. It appears as you approach this problem that that's the two methods that you have. Change the system from within the system or fight against the system, okay? This is a false dichotomy. This is this is giving you, would you like a bucket full of poison or would you like a bucket full of tasty poison? This is, this is the problem with this kind of thinking. You have to break your mind away from that false dichotomy and see that the answer is not one of those choices. Now let me explain this by, by talking about the mafia rather than talking about uh, the government. If you decided that the Mafia is a problem, and you decided that you wanted to not have the Mafia as a problem, should you get involved in the Mafia, earn the trust of the Mafia, and try to reform the Mafia from inside, while doing all the things that the Mafia does, while relying on all the business practices that the Mafia currently does, should you go into the Mafia and become a part of it and attempt to reform it? Well, I think most moral people would say, no, that's a bad idea. Okay, then. How about attacking the mafia? Would attacking the mafia, I mean, you're on the street and you see a guy who you know is in the mafia. Should you just shoot him? Should you run up and pop him in the nose? Would this be a good way to deal with the mafia? No, that's probably a good way to die. In order to deal with the mafia, you have to remove the market for the mafia. You have to remove what it is that causes a, a, a that causes a need for the mafia, because realize it or not, the mafia exists to fill a need. The mafia fills a need, and therefore it exists in the market. There is a market for the mafia; therefore, the mafia exists. If there was no market for the mafia, there would be no mafia. What do I mean by a market for the Mafia? Well, there's, uh, there's underground gambling, there's underground prostitution, there's underground loans that take place that the Mafia handles when people can't go to the normal channels of, of obtaining financing. Um, there's underground protection that the Mafia supplies. All these things the Mafia supplies into the market because they're not in the market without the Mafia. And then because it's the Mafia and not a legitimate business, you have the bad sides of the Mafia to deal with. But if there was no market for the Mafia, there would be no Mafia. Okay. So as we begin to understand this, then we begin to understand that if you remove the market for the mafia, then there will be no mafia. And the state is the same thing. Do you want to change the state by going in and taking wages from the th- from the thievery that is the state, and by by associating and by becoming a part of the violence of of the threat of taxation and of, and the theft of taxation and the threat of attacking another com- country even. Even if we're not actively, even if we do all the Ron Paul stuff and pull back all of our military and bring them all back home and bring them back to our bases, isn't the existence of the American state a threat by its sheer existence? Well, is the existence of the Iranian government a threat by its existence is the Iran- is the existence of the Chinese government a threat by its very existence is the existence of the Russian government a threat by its very existence it's a threat to somebody and the united St- and in the united states the existence of the state within the united states is a threat and if you are part of that you are part of that threat So is joining that and becoming a part of that an acceptable way to change that state? Does it work for the mafia? Is it a moral way to deal with the mafia? What about attacking it? Think about how dangerous it is to attack that guy in the mafia. You attack that guy in the mafia, you really have not done a wise thing. How much sillier is it to attack the largest crime gang the world has ever known? How much sillier is it to attack the most powerful crime gang the world has ever known, the United States government? How silly is it to bring up arms against the government? How silly is it... To, to lay up defenses and plan and plot any kind of activity that would violently oppose the U.S. government. How silly is that? And yet there are right-wing nuts all over the United States that are doing just that, and there are left-wing nuts that are all over the United States that are doing just that. And those people will be as used as excuses to attack the true liberty people at some point in time, if we don't separate ourselves from those people and make it clear that our intent is peace. We love the peace. We love the market, and we love the peace that comes from the market. That's what we're about. We are not about violence. We are not about self-defense is self-defense. As a bad Quaker, uh, I've said this over and over and over and over and over, Quakers are pacifists. I'm not a good Quaker. I'm not a pacifist. Attack me and see what happens. I'm not pretty. On the other hand, if the SWAT team busts through my door, I'm not resisting. I'm not resisting. Because that's foolish. You cannot win against the state by physically resisting the state. It can't be done. It's never been done. It never can be done. They are the kings of aggressive violence. Literally. Literally. kings (laughs) kings <laughs> anyway okay so i'm gonna start repeating myself and getting goofy now i can tell already so i think i've made my point i haven't quite hit the hour for today but um maybe we'll uh, maybe i can find something to uh, an older article that i can put on the end of this i did that the other day with one and and uh, maybe I can find an older article and, and tape it to the end. I'll duct tape it. I'll duct tape an old article to the end of this podcast so that we can take up the rest of our hour. Um, I talked to uh, Kai today. She's out of town temporarily. And it looks like she's probably going to be able to do another podcast, uh, or I should say she won't be able to do another podcast until probably Tuesday or so of next week. So uh, until then, you'll be stuck listening to my ra- raggedy old voice, but I'll try to stay entertaining for you. You know, Kai, uh, when she's on the podcast, she really keeps things a lot more lighthearted, and we can kick things around and be a lot more fun and a lot more goofy. Whereas I tend to, you know, get into things like <laughs> attacking the mafia, folks. I do appreciate you listening to BadQuaker.com. I want to say something. You know, if you have uh, if you have some feedback for me. Just email ben at badquaker.com. It's it's not necessary to figure out some uh, secondary way to try to get my attention. I I honestly I read every single one of my emails and I think I answer all my emails. If I if I miss answering an email it's just because I'm incompetent. It's not because I'm intentionally overlooking anyone. So uh, I really try to answer one hundred percent of my emails. So if you if you have a question or a comment or if you or if you're confused about what I said, or if you're angry about what I said, feel free to drop me an email, ben at badquaker.com. And I probably won't, you know, I'll probably respond in a in a humane manner. I generally do. So thanks a lot for listening. Be sure and check out our website at badquaker.com. And if uh, you have any of the problems, we're switching things around on the website to try to make it easier to post comments. So if you have any problem with that, or if you have any feedback on on anything with the website, uh, send that badquaker at badquaker.com. That's the admin for the website, badquaker at badquaker.com. Thanks a lot, folks. The State as God by Ben Stone. The state is a mythical non-human entity that exists only in the agreed minds of humans. By this I mean to say you cannot touch the state. You cannot hear the state speak. The state is not an object that you can point to and say, Look, there's the state. People believe in the state, and therefore people act on behalf of those beliefs. And the actions of those people become the actions of the state. Most people don't think about the state, they simply assume it has always been and will always be. However, true believers in the state are fanatical followers, willing to do anything, even kill, to perpetuate their cause. In the West, as the power and influence of the clergy diminished, the power and influence of the state stepped in to fill all the services previously provided by the church. That is to say, the scholarly leadership in science, culture, law, and economics. Eventually, people began looking to the state to define morals and ethics, allowing the laws and regulations of the state to supersede those of the clergy. Not long ago, the state redefined the public view of such things as alcoholic beverages, prostitution, and gambling. Turning their backs on their morals, people allowed the laws of the state to define acceptable and unacceptable social behavior. Rather than depending on a community's ability to define itself, people allow the state to sweep in and force all communities to adopt the state's definition of accepted morals. This expansion into society continued as the state began to directly compete with charities in supporting the poor and the disadvantaged. However, the state never competes fairly. As is always the case, the state quietly creates a problem. Private citizens defer to the state to solve the problem rather than facing up to their own responsibility, and as the state remedies the issue it created to begin with, it grabs a little bit more power and authority from the people. But in the end, the problem is always worse after the state solves it. Currently, there's a push among some very religious folks in the U.S. demanding the state step in and define marriage. As their confidence shifts from their traditional theology to the theology of state salvation... They enthusiastically abandon the family and the clergy as the guardians of marriage and look to legislators to decide morals. This should be a terrifying thought to anyone who understands the nature of the state. But most terrifying when one realizes that the actions of the state are simply the acts of fanatical individuals with unblinking devotion to a cause and no fear of repercussion. Becoming increasingly obvious that traditional theology is being supplanted with a state-centered religion, although the thought of the deification of the state should be disturbing to both the religious and the non-religious, it should come as no surprise. The state is, or seeks to be, godlike in every aspect. It is our protector, our guardian, and for many, our provider. Information about the state is hidden and secret, while the state is itself makes every effort to know every bit of information about us and all of our dealings. All learning flows from the state, schools, and media, and it assumes ultimate ownership of all things by its authority to tax, regulate, confiscate, and control the movements and exchanges of all goods, services, and property, including people. It assures us that rights are given to us by the state, and the state can take those rights away as it sees fit. It changes and shifts history to fool us into believing that the state has always been and will always be. The state feigns omniscience, seeks omnipresence, and lusts for omnipotence. The state is, alas, a jealous god, and ultimately will have no other gods before it. The state... In all its disjointed manifestations around the world will grow and devour everything, including its lesser selves, until it becomes one state as God on earth. When this comes to pass, the atheist will be denied his logical position of skepticism. How can he stand and shout the challenge, Show me your God, when the arm of the state can simply reach out and snatch him away into a reprogramming ward? Then the cry of, there is no God, will become, there is no God but the state. As Winston Smith admitted in 1984, two plus two is five. Am I then saying that this is the fate of mankind? Am I prophesying the loss of the individual and the birth of one assimilated beast with all its parts denigrated to slavery? Yes and no. The state has some design flaws consider Ludwig von Mises and his life's work exposing the endemic failures of socialism. To date, no one has been able to provide an accurate intellectual refutation of his position. Mises went to great pains to carefully dissect socialism and prove that the seeds of its destruction were part of its design. For example, socialism cannot peaceably coexist with a free market. And yet, socialism entirely depends on a free market because it has no mechanism to determine prices. Without a price mechanism, efficient production is impossible. You end up with dramatic overproduction and shortages at the same time. But what Mises didn't clearly point out, although it's not very well hidden either, is that his description of socialism is, at the same time, a description of the state itself and that the economic structure that the state possesses is, in fact, socialism. Therefore, the state is economically unstable, and is much the same as a cathedral of cards continually falling apart, and only standing at all because its worshippers throw their lives into keeping it propped up. So the state has an economic flaw, and is unsustainable. The state has another flaw. Just as Mises Proved the lack of price mechanism causes economic instability. Lysander Spooner proved the state has no rightful method of continuous authority. A state exists either by brute force or by contract with its subjects. It should be clear that any state that's founded on brute force alone is a dead state waiting to hit the floor. Assuming no secondary contract-based state is supporting it, the brute force state will quickly revert to revolution and be replaced by a contract state by its subjects, generally within a generation or two of its inception. As Spooner so thoroughly proved, any contract authorizing the authority of the state can only legally apply to those in agreement with that contract. The moment the state attempts to enforce its will upon some party not in agreement to that contract, it negates the value of having a contract and begins to slide into a brute state. And the state, by its very nature, will always break that contract. Additionally, since a contract has no legal means of binding future generations, the contract-based state is a temporary arrangement at best, doomed to become a brute state. So the state has no long-term legal foundation and is therefore legally unstable. I'll just add one more flaw in the design of the state. However, I could go on like this for pages. The state is entirely lacking a mechanism to determine morality. I would contend that humans have two mechanisms working hand-in-hand to produce morality. We have a sense of natural law, a right to property hardwired into our brains before birth. Some would debate this issue, but at this time, in this article, I will not. It is a fact almost too obvious to address. In addition to this innate morality in property, we learn moral lessons as we interact on a day-to-day basis with humans through the reward-punishment system. The state has no natural-born appreciation for the right of property because it is not a living being. It can inherit no genetic traits from its parents because it has no biological parents. It is a figment of the imagination, and since its actions are the actions of individual people, when those actions cause harm, the state is immune to punishment, because only the individuals can be punished or rewarded. The state feels nothing, so it is incapable of learning a single moral lesson. So the state is an imaginary entity made up in the minds of humans that strives to be Not just a god, it's already that, but it desires to be the god. The state lacks a functional economic structure, a legal basis for its existence, and the ability to determine morality. It is therefore unstable and doomed to collapse of its own weight as soon as it consumes enough of its host. For more articles and podcasts on liberty, the zero aggression principle, and property rights, go to badquaker.com. And thank you for listening.